those are all very helpful because we can see as we start, you know, ascending or um, as we start ascending, as we <laughs> we're levitating. <laughs> um, as we start assessing. This is not the week for this topic, though. <laughs> oh. It really is not, man. I, I have had I have had some problems with some programs this week. Oh, that's not good to hear. <laughs> yeah, I, I um. So I'm participating in the, uh, you know, in the Ambassador World Cup. You know, we we did all right. Our team did so so. I think I think yeah. we'll make it through. We'll see. But um, I had I had a crit this week. Go internal dupe. On a, and it was a crit that had been there for a while uh, on an external surface. And I'm like, come on, man. This is like a competition front. This is a competition, you know, program. And they still had that, that dupe in place from, for a while back. So I'm a little bit salty at the programs this, this, this week. So hopefully we can still, I can still bring an unbiased perspective into this episode on how to determine if a program is good or not. Dang, that's super frustrating. I've actually, I, I have, I don't know if this is a popular opinion, but my opinion is that if something is an internal dupe and it's still open after like, I don't know, set your arbitrary time frame six months a year, you should just pay for it anyways because Absolutely. you have to fix it by that point. What an attacker is going to exploit that, right? Nothing is going to stop an attacker. This bug has been there for five years, Joel. Okay, that five is not years. six months. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm a little salty. I'm a little salty. We're working it. We're working it through. I'm not going to call the program out, but um, yeah, you, you yeah. can roast them. You can tell me their name after. after I, off yeah, air. I'll, I'll tell you off air. All right, let's let's get to the news. Um, let's see what do we got today. Okay, so I just wanted to do a little shout out real quick. Jason came on the show last week. It was super fun having him on. Um, he actually released a tool. Uh, almost. You know, right as we aired last week or a little bit before we recorded, I think, um, called AWS Scrape, which is a, a Go tool to um, monitor AWS IP ranges and alert for uh, SSL certificate data. So this is going to be really cool if you're... Sorry, I just slapped my mic. Um, <laughs> this is going to be really cool if you are um, you know, searching for assets that are kind of ephemeral or are kind of just popping up and so that you can be... Uh, right, get jump right on attacking them as soon as they pop up. I used to do this a lot. I kind of edged out of the recon game, but totally viable strategy in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of towing a good line between just like an off-the-shelf tool and a custom home built like recon continuous checking type framework where mm. you could probably spin this into something pretty easy to help you get a little more visibility, especially for say you're targeting a specific program, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but mm -hmm. if you're targeting like one specific program and you want to like continuously get alerts when they have new infrastructure pop up, it's probably a really good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So definitely be, uh, you know, keep that in mind if you're getting ready to look at, um, uh, you know, implementing something like that for SSL certificates in your recon flow. Um, you want to take Let's one? Let's talk about, yeah, Acropolis. So that was kind of the oh big news over the last week or two. That was nuts, um, dude. Yeah, so basically there was a vulnerability within the Google Pixel screenshotting cropping mechanism where if you ever wondered how you can edit 
an image from your photos app and then there's a mm -hmm. revert button that mm -hmm. manages to magically revert mm. it back to its original state well this is kind of how that works and this is abusing that functionality essentially so they figured out that at truncated to the end of the image is essentially a lot of the original image data and then you can use that to reconstruct it back to the original image to view the full uncropped data so if you took a screenshot of a sensitive page with a bunch of information on you crop it down to just the little relevant part you would be able to reverse that back um, and then a couple days later they found that the windows snipping tool is also vulnerable to the same type no. of attack yeah so oh it, it was a gosh. it was a zero day in uh in the pixel stuff and then somebody replied and was like hey it was interesting i i I took a screenshot with the snipping tool, and it looks like it has a lot of that same data on the end. You might want to look into that. Does <laughs> it sure have, enough, do you know if it's like, is this the exact same process, or is it just like the snipping tool also sort of made that similar mistake in embedding that metadata? It seems like it's almost identical based oh on what um, the the researcher, uh, what, was, what was his name, yeah, David? Yeah, look at this. Crop's yeah, so original. based on what the, research, the researcher David uh, Buchanan mentioned, mm -hmm. it seems like it's very, very similar. It's just a difference between like, RGB and um, RGBA with like wow. transparency. Dang, um, dude, that's nuts. Yeah, look at this. It's almost fully, he got a, a almost fully recovered image out of that. Yeah, it's super wild. So it's a really interesting, really dangerous vulnerability, especially depending on the image hosting service that you've used. Like, I yeah. think one of the examples was Discord, where this doesn't have to do with EXIF data. It's not like they're not stripping metadata. This is separate. It's the image file itself has extra data attached to it that you would be able to use to extract the original image. So even if you uploaded like a photo to Discord five years ago or whatever, that could potentially that photo could be vulnerable oh, yeah. to this and you could extract it. So uh, it's just something to be aware of. I know that he tweeted out some preventative measures. So for example, one of the measures that he suggests is from a server side, you could write uh, a filter within your, uh, your web, you know, your web server, basically mm -hmm. like an Nginx pro uh, plugin or something like that, that would strip out the end data mm -hmm. so that you're only left with the original image and that would work retroactively and all that kind of stuff. So there are definitely um, options if this is something that you, like you or your company might be struggling mm -hmm. with, but um, it's definitely one of those like really gnarly bugs that is uh, going to have a lot of mess surrounding it that's going to be kind of hard to clean up. Yeah, man, because any, any picture cropped within that, you know, in the past is out there and there's nothing you can do to really modify that at this point besides, yeah, I guess if you're hosting an image, you can modify that by, you know, actually modifying the file itself and stripping off that data at the end. But like, who wants yeah, to do would, that? That, that know, sounds it's, awful. It's so wild. Dude, one of the, it's funny because on the original tweet thread, somebody replied and was like, hey, so let's say I've been sending cropped images from Google phones to Discord for about a uh, six years. Oh no! How, how <laughs> fucked am I? <laughs> and and, oh and the, the, the like the like researchers replied and was like, well, it depends on a few factors, but given that there's six years of images, I would guess pretty fucked. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> yeah, that's bad. I wonder, did they um did they report this to Google and did it get a bounty? I'm pulling it up right now. Let's see. They if did it... report it to Google. That was actually the interesting thing. I was looking to see if it got a bounty, and I did not see it. At least on the yeah. original thread. I'm sure they must have gotten one, um, unless there was some P3 really weird. S3 on Google's, on Google's internal issue tracker. I found it from if you go to the the blog post exploiting mm -hmm. Acropolis, uh, and then you click on his his blog at the very end. There's like yeah. an issue tracker, and then yeah, it says fixed. 
uh, S3, P3, um, but no bounty assigned. So I don't know, man. If they didn't give a bounty for that, that's pretty whack because that's a very impactful bug, I think. Yeah, it's super wild. It feels like one of those things that would be worth, like, you know, 30K, 50K, yeah, 100K, absolutely. something like that. One of those really, really groundbreaking ones. Yeah. So I do hope that they got a bounty or will get one soon and they might even be eligible that might be one of those things that's eligible for uh the google play rewards thing or oh something yeah like that. some extra something bounty like but yeah really cool bug um it was really interesting if you haven't given it a read go read the original blog post because it's so interesting it was mm. another one of those kind of bugs that just popped up out of nowhere like by accident and they were like huh i wonder if this is possible and just kind of explored that route and it ended up being a really bad really critical vulnerability so it's a really interesting story. It's a really well-written blog post, um, and it's a super, super interesting vulnerability yeah. altogether. All, all sometimes you just got to go after that curiosity, man. You got to feed that curiosity because sometimes it works it works itself into some crazy vulns like this one. Yeah, cool. Uh, speaking of vulns in really bad, like really critical core uh -oh. <laughs> modules, you want to talk about the SSRF that Doyensec found? Yeah, man, that that was pretty gnarly. So uh, this was another blog post. Actually, this one came out almost two weeks ago now, but it's I just seen it recently. This is a uh, SSRF filter bypass in uh, Node Requests Library, which is a pretty yeah, a pretty no core deal. library. Um, and so it looks like just from reading this over. Uh, the, the TLDR of it is essentially if you redirect, if you do a redirect to localhost or something like that, when you're using this uh, SSRF request filter plugin, um, and, it, and that request is the same, um, uses the same scheme, so HTTP uh, website to HTTP website, then it catches it. But if you send it to an HTTPS website, in the originally and then you redirect to an http website then somehow it just bypasses the whole check and if you look at the code in this in this blog dude look at this it's just oh my gosh it's ridiculous request it's, uri it's protocol so yeah and then it literally just skips the whole thing if you don't have <laughs> it's just like i'll just the delete protocol. the agent yeah yeah um so it's kind of nuts this is not something that i was testing for um Let's see. First disclosure to maintainer was 20, uh, 2022 in December. So um, if you know your companies haven't patched this, this very well may still be out there um, and definitely something to take a look at. And I think this is particularly nasty because like, for, for example, well, I imagine a lot of people just use HTTP for their little like POC redirect server, right? Because no one really wants to like spin up, you know, get an SSL certificate, especially those people that are doing sort of cloud first and just kind of spinning up stuff when they need it. Um, a lot of that stuff is going to be HTTP based, I'd imagine. And um, this is also probably going to have um, SSL verification. So it's not like you can just spin up like a temp SSL certificate or anything. So definitely something to be keeping in mind and test with. Get, you know, a full https set up on your on your you know testing callback server and do a redirect from https to http and see if you can bypass some of those http filters or those um those redirect filters on ssrfs yeah i think as a tester this would be something i would probably just put in my normal testing criteria for from a yeah. exploitability perspective it does seem like it has just like basically one mitigating factor which is that the root is through this agent thing and mm -hmm. i hadn't actually heard about I, I wasn't familiar with what the agent was or what it was used for and mm -hmm. it looks like it's essentially a way for you to manage connections within like an application so if you want to reuse connections for more efficiency or that type or if you want to filter certain connections that was the example that was given um, mm. then you could do it with an agent and so basically when it changes protocols it deletes the agent 
and so all of your checks that might be within your agent get bypassed so if you're a hacker and you don't know like are they using an agent or not give it a test and if you're a company and you're not sure if you're vulnerable just look and see if you're using an agent and if you're not you're probably okay but if you can upgrade just do it get your get your source code grepping tools ready because yeah that's going to be pretty bad i think this would also you know be fixed by a, a decent patch cycle you know if you if you're patching your stuff on a regular basis um and making sure that these core libraries like request are up to date then you should be fine too but that doesn't always happen as we know true yeah cool um, let's see. ZDI was the only other thing that I wanted to talk about, dude. They had like a crazy, so we don't really, I guess in my sphere of bug bounty, we're mostly talking about hacker one and bug crowd and integrity and all them. Um, and I, I don't hear us talking about ZDI quite as much, but every time the competition pops up, it's pretty exciting. And I kind of want to go for it at some point. Like I, I've only done hacker one live hacking events. I've done a bug crowd one, uh, I think maybe I did two bug crowd ones, but besides that, just hacker one and the ZDI model seems pretty, pretty cool. Um, they just kind of give you some targets in advance and you earn these masters of pwn and, uh, you know, obviously large, uh, sums of money in conjunction with them. And I think a couple teams, actually the Tesla was a, uh, was a target for uh, some of these teams and, uh, Synactive and then one other team, uh, let's see if I can find it yeah one other team yeah they they also uh pwned the tesla which is kind of nuts um and i think they walked away with 250k which is crazy yeah super crazy Uh, it was really interesting to see the recap it's cool because uh the re i think the recap was just a couple days ago Mm -hmm. and it looks like they paid out just over a million dollars to to the teams so all in all i mean that's up to par even past some of the live hacking events that we've been to um and it's really awesome to see that kind of research i think we don't talk a lot about zdi because Mm. and i'm not sure how much this is still the case but at least early on they were kind of like the like black sheep of the bug bounty world where it wasn't really it wasn't like official like you're not reporting it directly to the company and stuff take a look at their website it seems like they're more like legit and stuff but it is still kind of a weird profit incentive to think about like basically you're selling the vulnerability to the ZDI and then they're going to work with the vendor and stuff to help like disclose it. But they still have that bug in the middle and it's a little bit, a little bit interesting to think about what they might be doing with that bug. If anything, all that kind of stuff, I'm not going to speculate too much, but you can probably use your imagination. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I hope the sponsors are involved, you know, straight from the beginning, you know, straight from when the reports come in. Um, One of the other things that I've heard about ZDI which is a little bit interesting is you have a five minute slot. So these are fully formed exploits. Let me just, let me just say that as well. And these are not normally like, I mean, sometimes they have like, you know, hit this web endpoint and get an RC uh, exploits. But a lot of the times when you see the, the write-ups for them, they're talking about, you know, binary exploitation stuff. Um, and one of the, uh, so you and I, you know, you remember when we were working on that bug that we still haven't talked about, but it took a couple minutes, but then it took over the whole device, right? Right. So I was researching because that, because I was like, all right, you know, this this device had been a target for a ZDI in the past, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could have done it at the at the event? I was researching a little bit, and one of the things that it, it I found was that when you're demoing your bug for the competition for the Pontone competition, the exploit has to successfully trigger in a five minute window. 
which is pretty freaking short and sounds hella stressful because like if you're if you're doing like race conditions if you're doing you know any of these uh complex attacks that we've been talking about with like brute forcing that might take a little bit of time but you pwn the device in the end you know those might not be eligible for this attack or for this you know for this bounty through zdi um and yeah i think that's a little bit unfortunate because you know i think there's going to be some there's some good bugs they're missing out on on that yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's kind of cool that it's it's sort of a culmination. Like it, you have to perform well, right? It's not mm -hmm. just for having yeah. the cool bug. You also it also has to work basically basically first time, right? It has to be a perfectly executed ex exploit chain. And I assume you have to do this on like a brand new device, right? Yeah. So they bring yeah, in do. like a brand new motherboard or whatever from the Tesla, and they're like, sure. exploit this. And you just hope that your testing device was on the same version and, and everything works the same and all that kind of stuff. Because if it doesn't, then there goes your 250K. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I'm looking through here. It says on one of their tweets from March 24th is Star Labs team was not able to get their exploit on Microsoft Teams working in the allotted amount of time. And I'm like, oh, that's got to uh, kill. God. That's got to be so And painful. I'm sure they all went back to the lab and got it working in five minutes. So. I know. And, you know, we, we complain about dupes and stuff like that. But, like... This guy is literally, you know, they have this fully formed exploit and then it just, you know, something messes up and, and they couldn't get it in for five minutes. And now that cost goes to much lower. I, I'm sure their prize goes to much lower. So kind of unfortunate, but it still looks like a fun thing. I'm not sure I would go all at it and like try to hit all of these different devices that they're doing, but um, I would definitely, definitely take a stab at some of the hardware devices because we've, we've been focusing on that a little bit more lately and that's been, that's been really fun. So. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, let's see. Where do we want to go from here? We can dive right into... Yeah, let's dive right into it. Okay. So first, let's... We're, so our topic for today is how to determine if a program is a good, is a good program. Um, I think this is going to help people when you're starting out in bug bounty. You're not exactly um, familiar with what uh, indicators you should look for in a good program. So Joel and I are going to talk about some of the things we look at when we uh, look at a bounty brief and kind of talk through what it means for us to be uh, sort of a good program. So um, Joel, I'm going to put you on the spot, man. Hit me, hit me with some of your top program. I guess, well, I guess we can't because they're going to be private programs in there too. Can you talk about any of your top, you know, your top favorite programs? I'm going to go check if one of mine's is, is private Sure, and I'll just preface by, like, most of them are in mm. the World Cup right now. But um, Yahoo, mm. uh, Shopify, um, those are probably my top two. Mm. Mm. And then I don't know if I can list the third one because it's a private program. So, yeah. Um, yeah, those are probably my top two. And I'll say the main reasons, at least, like, off, right off the top of my head, and we'll go into these, but it's... Uh, how easy it is and how adaptable they are towards like actual hackers hacking on their program. For mm. example, preceding accounts, letting you sign up with we are hacker one, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And just ability to triage, ability to pay have good payouts, ability to handle things in an efficient man manner, ability to um, have a wide enough scope for you to stay interested for long periods of time. Like those things are kind of difficult. It's not, I, I'm phrasing it as ability to, right? But it's not really an ability. It's like, do you have lots of servers? Yes or no? <laughs> it's right, like, right. Nothing, there's no like inherent ability that you have lots of servers. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Those are definitely some top indicators. For me, I've got Instacart and PayPal on my list. I really like those two programs. The third one I would really like to shout out, but it's a private program. Um, I'm just going to say it's a big bank. 
<laughs> and they have a responsible disclosure program on HackerOne. And yeah, they just, you know, really, you know, cool company. I'm trying to think of some, you know, in inverted way to tell you who it is. But let's just say they're the one that I want to hack on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, ooh, <laughs> subtle. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't say anything. I can't be held liable. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, those are my top three, and I'll 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 double click into that for just a second. So, Instacart um, has been a really good program to me. Um, I'm gonna go pull up my you know their their uh, page really quick and kind of talk through some of the reasons why that's the case. Um, first of all, the bounty ranges are really competitive. So if you pull up their brief, um, Insta or hackone.com/slash Instacart. Um, 20K crits, $7,500 highs, 3K mediums, $500 lows. Um, obviously, these are, so uh, this is something I'll point out that maybe a lot of uh, newcomers would miss. When you see these numbers, it says right underneath there, payouts are our typical maximum for a submission based on severity. So just because it says 3K for a medium doesn't mean you're going to get 3K for a medium. You could get $501 for a medium because that's the range between low and medium. Um, so I want to keep that in mind. Uh, but also, um, the Instacart team has been very responsive, um, very willing to, uh, you know, pay good bounties based off of uh, impact assessment that I've kind of talked through with them. Um, and I think that's really important in a program. Yeah, and I think that highlights a lot of the same things that I talked about where, mm -hmm. like, when you're hacking on something long term and a lot, mm -hmm. you want a good working relationship with the program essentially, yeah. right? So you want to be able to communicate with them efficiently. You want them to appreciate the work that you're putting in as much as mm -hmm. the work that they're putting in to fix it, right? Yeah. And talk with you and have payouts and maintain the report and all that kind of stuff. Um, it takes effort from both sides. And so I think when there's sort of that mutual respect from both the program and the hacker, that adds a lot of value to your hacking experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think that means, and, and I think that mutual respect can be shown a lot of ways. It can be respect for each other's time by responding quickly to, you know, uh, responses on the report. It can be communicating in a professional way. Um, so many times you see the, uh, what is it? Bloody taxi driver report kind of pop up in, in hacker one circles where somebody just totally went off on, on an Uber driver or on an Uber, uh, on an Uber program and calling them bloody taxi driver. Um, but you know, we don't want to be abusive with our words. That's never going to get you a bounty. I've never seen someone coming in there saying, listen here, you guys, like you better beepity beepity pay me some money, you know, and then get paid. So, um, definitely, you know, keeping that communication clean and professional. And, and for me, I also struggle with keeping it concise. You know, like I often will just be like, you know, typey type and, and, you know, pop out this whole list, but then I'll just delete it and I'll go back and I'll like, look, I could, I could accomplish this in like three sentences. So I just need to keep it clean, keep it smooth. And, um, and I think that does a lot for the relationship with the program too, because they've got a lot of reports they're responding to. And, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's a big burden on them if they have to read, you know, a, a novel every time you send in a report. So, yeah, I think that's. I think we talked a little bit in, in an earlier episode about report writing, but mm -hmm. that's one of those things where you don't want to be too verbose early on yeah. when you're new to bug bounty. I think it's very easy to feel like you need to fully explain like every little part, like how you got there and what your thought process was and stuff. And it, it makes for a cool blog post or it makes for like a fun reading for reading the report, like in retrospect. But I think 
it's better to just be clear and concise and to the point and describe the vulnerability less than the thought process so that they can just be like, okay, this is what's going on and understand it really easily instead of having to read through like blocks and blocks of text. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so Joel, let's let's put put this in a hypothetical here. Uh, I'm gonna send you. I can send you right now on 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 Discord. You can come look at the uh, the Instacart um, team bounty brief. Um, cool. Look at that and tell me how you read this. What are the things you you look at right away? What thing stands out to you? Um, where do your eyes jump when you look at this brief? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the first thing I'm looking at is uh, the bounty table. And mm -hmm. like you said, is it mins or maxes? And generally speaking, what it, what is their feeling for highs and crits? That, I think that's mm -hmm. the most important thing. How much money are they putting where their mouth is in terms of high and critical vulnerabilities? Are mm -hmm. they willing to, willing to pay $50,000? Are they willing to pay $5,000? Are they willing to pay yeah. $500? Are they willing to pay $50, right? Like we've seen all across the board, like uh, I think – one of our buddies just the other day was just saying, oh, I just got added to this program and they pay $50 highs and a hundred. Oh my crits. gosh, dude. It it's was like, crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I understand every, every company's not just rolling in money and stuff, but that feels like a little bit of a low priority on your security. If you ask me, mm, especially yeah, when you're trying sure. to incentivize people to spend time finding security vulnerabilities on your, on your company. Yeah. And, so, and valid, you know, validated, um, POC or GTFO vulnerabilities because you know if you're just gonna pay and I think we've had some programs in the past do that if you read through the activity if you're gonna pay everybody who submits a report like hey you missed these headers uh, hey you know SPF record blah -de blah DMAR whatever um, then you're you know one you're incentivizing bad behavior in the bug bounty community because those reports don't get um, accepted elsewhere. So people are going to submit one report, get a $50 bounty from you and then get screwed for the rest of their bug bounty career. Um, uh, but also, you know, you're going to get a bunch of, you know, crappy, no POC bugs. And at the end of the day, that's not what bug bounty is about. Bug bounty is about handing them. I, this is my opinion, maybe, but I feel like this is pretty well backed up in the community, but I feel like bug bounty is about, you know, most of the time handing them an actionable item that that's going to make changes in their code right away that it oftentimes is uh, attached a you know beautiful POC that's going to demonstrate impact um and and you know prove something that needs to needs to change so um you know if you if you have these if you have $50 bounties or whatever and you're just throwing them out like candy to everyone you might be paying the same amount but i think you're getting a lot less um, bang for your buck because you're not attracting the right kind of hackers and you're incentivizing poor behavior in the bug bounty community. Right. And I, and I feel like if you're paying $50 because you, you realize you have a lot of vulns and you don't want to be going broke, then maybe address why you have so many vulns. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, yeah. Like this is one of the cruxes of like a, a, a well-paying program, right? Yeah. On one hand, it's awesome that they are well-paying and that they have, have high bounties. On the other hand, it's kind of terrifying that they're paying so much money for vulnerabilities over and over again because mm -hmm. you should be stopping vulnerabilities. Absolutely, yeah. So um, anyways, I'll, I'll leave that at that. We, we can okay. keep going through. So yeah. the next thing I'd probably look at is efficiency. I, I'm Basically, I read it from top down as you would mm -hmm. look at it on HackerOne or whatever. Yeah. So I'm looking at the response efficiency section. And average time to first re re response, that's a pretty good metric to see sort of how, like, how responsive are they? How active are they? If they have H1 triage, then that mm -hmm. metric kind of just doesn't matter because triage will always respond within SLA. Yeah, and you can see up at the top right-hand corner, just for those of you new to HackerOne, 
um, if you if you say you know if you, right next to the smart, uh, submit report button, if you look to the right of that, it'll tell you when the program launched, and it'll also say managed by Hacker One if it's managed by Hacker One. And and if it is, like Joel said, you're always going to get an SLA response from the triagers, um, and they're going to be responding within a certain period of time. So yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up. The the launch date. That's mm -hmm. another thing. Mm -hmm. I might even look at that before the bounty table and stuff. Yeah. But typically, I'm going to look at that sort of in conjunction with the things I'm talking about right here with efficiency sure. and right onto statistics. So as I'm looking at efficiency, those things matter sort of. But again, if it's a managed program, generally those things are going to be kind of within normal normal spec. It's probably going to be at least 90% uh, hitting SLA over the last 90 days. The response times are probably going to be pretty good. You know, the longer that you do this, I think the less emphasis that I put on, like, I want a program to have this paid out in a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand yeah. that things take time. I'll submit other bugs. Hopefully those get paid out first, whatever. Yeah, for sure. And I think as a professional bug bounty hunter, as a full-time bug bounty hunter, you know, there there's this concept of a pipeline, too, that you, I've heard a couple other um, bug bounty hunters, full-time bug bounty hunters talk about, Alex Chapman, Yasin, um, them. Um, you know, once you once you kind of get rolling, you've got unpaid bugs that are you know sitting in the queue waiting for them to get paid. As you're finding new bugs, as you're keeping on moving, and those bugs are paying bugs of the past are paying your current expenses. And while you're finding the bugs for next week and the week after that, so um, a lot of people would say when thinking about full-time bug bounty, like you know, I'm sure it's important for you to have like a quick payout. It's not really super important. It is important to me from a motivation perspective because you know, if I submit a report, I would like to get positive feedback for that report. Make sure that I'm understanding the threat model correctly before I invest more time, um, you know, uh, researching on that company and developing my understanding of the threat model even more. Um, I, I want to know whether I'm on the right path. Um, so that it is important for that metric, but it's not quite important uh, as important for a full-time bounty hunter as, as as pertains to like just getting a, your normal salary and you know paying your day-to-day -day bills. Yeah, but I think that is an important point, especially if you are somebody who acts full-time and you're going to be hacking on one program. That's something to definitely consider if they're going to be paying out fast or slow, mm -hmm. because yeah. how long of a buffer do you need to have reports in their queue for them to be paying out before you start making money? Yeah. If it takes them six months to pay out a report, well, then you got to be submitting reports for six months because yeah. you got a delay on that by six months. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm looking at the, the Instacart um, thing here, and I believe that this program has a little bit of a, of a delay, like the, the response you know, statistics here, it says average time to bounty is about a month. I've actually had... A, a lot better experience with them than a month. It's normally two two weeks ish for me, which I think is pretty good. Ideally, it would be around a week, um, but two weeks makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I know they do weekly meetings to pay out their vulns and assess severity and that sort of thing. Um, so that's that's good. Um, depending on when you submit it, you might hit you know one or one of those or two of those. If you submit right before they do their meeting, then you know it might get in that meeting or it might not. Um, so uh, I've definitely, I definitely look at that metric too. That's one of the first things that I, I look at when I get to a brief. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear like that perspective as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's kind of maybe something that I take for granted having mm -hmm. worked on the other side yeah. at companies that have bounty programs where you know much more how the process is going. Yeah, they're, they're a company. They have employees, the two other things. So generally there's probably a weekly or biweekly meeting where they get together and they talk about the bounties and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's often why there are delays on bounties because it's a, 
it, there's it's just a company you know it's being run by employees who have other things to do it's just yeah. a meeting that they go to and they take care of stuff and um as much as that's your top focus if you're doing a lot of bug bounty it's not always their top focus so you yeah. just have to remember that as you're doing your hacking and you're like where's my bounty yeah for sure so i mean you've worked with a couple companies that have bug bounty programs is that the normal flow every week you have a meeting or yeah, I mean, sometimes, depending on the size of the program and how frequently you get reports, you might handle it just sort of ad hoc and right off the bat. Um, I think a lot of companies now are pushing to try and pay on triage. So once they basically validated that it's a valid finding, they try and pay the bounty as soon as they can. And they real they you know recognize, okay, this is something valid. We'll give you your money because we understand the severity. We understand the impact. And then we can work on fixing it. You can be happy and keep hacking on us and get your money and hopefully sort of build that rapport between the researcher and the program. Yeah. I, I think Shopify was one of the, the programs that first brought that into, into place. Yeah. It says if you submit a valid and bounty eligible report, we will pay you within seven days of triage. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty, pretty awesome. cool. I, I would love to see more programs, uh, you know, uh, do that because yeah, it's definitely motivating. And it's also the bigger thing for me is validating my understanding of, of the threat model for the company um, and seeing how they respond and how they rate the severity of the bug so that I can know what areas I need to focus on within the app. Yeah, 100%. Um, cool. So generally, the la one of the last things that I look at, going back to the, the program, like how mm -hmm. I look at programs, is those program statistics about bounties. So. Okay. I will usually use that in conjunction with the launch date to understand how old is this program and what are their total bounties sure. and then use that to start doing some of the averages along with the data that's in there. So for example, total bounties paid on Instacart right now uh, is about 400K. The program has been around for just about a year. Um, it's launched in February, 2022. It's uh, at it's March, 2023. So that's about 400K in a year. That's honestly a lot of reports for that amount of time um and it says that their average bounty range is 150 to 250 dollars yeah i think i think that is because of the of the changes to the bounty table yeah and so i don't know what it looked like before although you, mm. you could probably step back and look at it but i try not to take too much of that consideration because mm. that average is across all of their bounties right yeah. so of their 400k you can be almost certain that 80% of those are literally just like bottom of the barrel type, lows, low yeah. hanging fruit, like lows. And that's why that average bounty is 150 to $250 because yeah. it's not critical things, but it they are valid reports. Mm -hmm. If you look at their top bounty range, that's mm -hmm. probably what it, when I would start to be like, okay, how likely is it that they're going to pay something really bad? Mm -hmm. And if so, what are they paying for it, right? Yeah. So that'll typically show like the very top end of the bounties that they paid. If they've ever paid a full max crit, which they have, right? Their bounty, mm -hmm. their top bounty range is 2,000 to 20,000. Yeah. So that means they've at least paid a really bad medium and they've definitely paid a 10 out of 10 critical. Yeah. So that means it's out there and it exists and they care about it and they put the money where their mouth is. And that says a lot. Yeah, I think also the other thing that the average bounty range kind of says to me as well is if it is on this lower end, uh, you know, in, in their low range rather than in their medium range. I think this also speaks to the fact that they are probably a pretty accepting program. So, you know, if you have something that's kind of like, oh, I'm not sure that this is like, you know, super great. You know, I, I have a pretty high standard for, for bugs. Um, and, but, you know, from time to time, I'll find something that's just kind of like, eh, I'm not sure. 
I might I might take a look at this, see you know what kind of bounties they're paying, and say okay, well you know if their average range is a little bit closer to the low, that means there's probably been more lows ex accepted. So the company might be more willing to pay something that's you know a very minimal leak in confidentiality or like a very minimal modification in integrity with an attack complexity high or something like that. Whereas other programs might sort of just say ah that's not a vulnerability. So that's another yeah. you know way you can think through it. Yeah, for sure. And I will generally combine that with the next two things, which is bounties in the last 90 days mm. and reports received in the last 90 days Yeah, to sort of calculate a second average. That's basically a 90-day running average mm. of roughly how much bounty are they paying now? Like in the last three months, are they actively paying mostly $150 bounties or are they mm. paying higher than that? So yeah. in 90 days, they paid 22,450. They've res resolved 114 reports mm. and their last report was resolved six days ago. Yeah. So that, that tells me three things. One, they're paying pretty good bounties, 20K mm. in three months. That's not nothing. That's mm. a couple thousand a month. That yeah. means that there's at least some stuff in there that's worth looking for. For sure. 100 report reports resolved. That's a pretty good amount of activity. So yeah. just be aware that there's lots of eyes on it. And that and... means that means a lot of I mean those reports I think also include like things that are in not just in resolved as in like the state resolved but you know if you put something in duplicate if you put something in informative if you put something in NA so you know think eighty percent of those uh, are going to be garbage because right. uh, it's a public program so that that can also help skew your statistics for what actually the bounties look like. Yeah, but if I see like last ninety days total bounties paid like three thousand, mm -hmm. that means either their security program, their security team is insane. Yeah, they have a small hardened scope, or yeah. nobody's hacking. Yeah. So, yeah. you use some context clues. You can probably do some hunting to figure out which one of those cases it is, or maybe might be something completely different that we didn't mention. But these are generally the types of things that we're getting, in, like feels from the program as we're just sort of looking through it. Mm. And then the last thing that I generally look at is scope. Um, nowadays, it's very common to have broad scope, I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, you know, maybe five years ago, it, most places would have like one website or like just our main website because there was sort of that fear over what hackers would do. But I think over time, the, the, the community has shifted and realized that it doesn't really matter what hackers are going to like what bug bounty hunters are going to do because hackers are going to do whatever the hell they want exactly. so you have to have everything in scope otherwise it, it doesn't matter if you, you oh it's out of scope my bad the hackers aren't going to hack us then like mm -hmm. no it does, that doesn't matter hackers don't know what scope is they don't care so i mean sorry non-ethical hackers right, <laughs> we, right we hackers good hackers <laughs> bad White actors hackers. yeah sorry bad actors yeah bad actors are like a scope what's that yeah um so i scope is kind of one of those things that i'll look at just to see if there's anything really explicitly out of out of scope but generally most of the things that a company owns oftentimes a wildcard domain or a wildcard subdomain mm -hmm. that'll be in scope and that's always a great sign because it just means that it's free range just look find a vulnerability submit a vulnerability um and that that's the main thing that i look for that's all like surface level mm -hmm. if i want to go any deeper than that i might start looking through the specifics like writings within the program policy mm -hmm. to see what things they might have noted down do they have specific testing procedures do i have to put a header in my yeah. requests uh, any of that kind of stuff that's what i might scan for within the the policy text um 
but a lot of the times, most of the preliminary data that's going to determine whether or not I'm even going to look at a program is within those couple of boxes. It's yeah. what are their rewards? What's their response like? What are their overall bounties total and over the last 90 days? And how long has the program been out to, to sort of gauge, you know, what's the, what's the payout range look like over a period of time? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I was actually, so I was going to bring up another thing relating to that. Uh, and I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to do it right now because I think, yeah, that's funny. Bug crowd is going through some scheduled maintenance as we're recording this right now. <laughs> this great timing. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Okay. No, the, the cached, I can use the cached version here. Um, so, uh, man, it doesn't have the, the data I need though. So I was going to talk about one, one program, um, Pinterest on bug crowd. Uh, and kind of talk about uh, them as a as an example. So if you look at at their um, setup, it says that criticals are 25k uh, or up to 25k. But then highs are like, and I don't want to quote it wrong since I'm not exactly even looking at it anymore. Um, but I want to say they were like a couple grand. Yeah, here they are right here. I've got it in a screenshot. Two. So P1s are 20k to 25k, and then P2s. This is on Bug Crowd are 2,500 to 3,500. So like a 10th of a high or of a, of a critical. That's quite a, quite a range. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about relating to this was I always look at what a program pays for mediums, um, as well as what they pay for crits because uh, those are my two main anchor points like the highs. Okay. You know, I, I do po I do look at that and it is important, but for me, the anchor points are mediums and crits because at the end of the day, I'm always trying to find a crit, but you know, you know how we do here at critical thinking, always trying to find the crits. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're finding crits in the process of finding crits, you're going to find a lot of mediums. Um, and, and I think it's nice to have a good payout for the mediums. Um, uh, when, you know, when you're, when you're continuing your journey there. So, um, my normal standard is I want to see the mediums, Ah, man, actually, before this episode, you know, I was, I was, I've been saying that I would like to see my mediums at uh, 700, at least 750. But with the way that the industry has been moving lately, it might even start, you know, moving a little bit more towards a thousand um, for the mediums. That's kind of where I want to see those, you know, landing. For um, minimum, Benny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for minimum would be would be great. The average, you know, hitting hitting around 750 to 1,000 would be good. So if you look at the Instacart program, you know, their mediums are, are 3K. I had, a, I had a buddy lately who submitted a medium and got paid out $2,500. Um, and that's, that's amazing. That's a great, you know, that's a great day of hunting right there. It was right. one day. Uh, he's one of my mentees. And he, he found a great bug and got a great payout for it. Um, and, and so, you know. I'll, a lot of people get distracted by the big numbers, but at the end of the day, you're probably going to find more mediums. Uh, and so if you pay attention to those, uh, you'll also walk away with some, some extra money in your pocket. Yeah, so. I, I totally agree. I think you're more likely to hit on sort of either side of a high where you're yeah. either going to find something that's not quite a high or you're going to yeah. find something that is definitely not a high and is yeah. more of a crit. Sometimes it'll be on the fence between a high and a crit, and that's where I would emphasize report writing and demonstrating impact and chaining vulnerabilities to try and really push it away from the barrier and really into the critical range. But if, you know, most of the time you're going to find something that's, eh, you know, it's a vulnerability, it's nothing crazy, it's whatever, and mm -hmm. it's medium. Or you're yeah. going to find something that's really, really bad and is a critical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I totally agree. Um, so 
let's see. I want to go back to this list here because we have a little list in the doc of of some things here. One of the things that you wrote down that I thought was interesting was like, what is the gap between the number one hacker and the number two, number three, number four, number five hacker? What does that tell you about the program? Yeah, so this is something that I always find really interesting, especially for public programs. I uh, like 75% of the time, it's always like one of those like top three people who has an insane recon scanning automation yeah. system yeah. built up like Nagly or try to hack or, um, or today is new. Mm-hmm. However, especially when it's not one of those people, that's when I get really interested because it's somebody who's probably spent a lot of time on that program. They're very familiar. They've done the deep dive and they're very, very familiar with the inner workings of that program and their infrastructure. And that's what's letting them create that gap. Right. Mm. But something is happening between like top top number one and number two. Oftentimes it's like a thousand reps, sometimes even more, um, depending on the program and depending on the hacker. And I think those are really interesting cases to figure out what does that person know about the program or what does that person figured out that lets them get a thousand rep ahead and have so many more crits or highs than the other people who are hacking and looking at the same scope. And how can I replicate that kind of, you know, uh, either it's attack yeah. methodology so, or how they're writing the report or whatever. So does that, does that come across as, so, you, so say you see someone, you know, 2K rep, the next person's like 400 rep or something like that. Does that, how does that make you feel? Does that deter you? Does that encourage you? Does that have a neutral impact on your decision to work on that program or what? It's a little bit of both, so especially if it's somebody I know personally. I'm like, yeah. oh, they, they've already sweeped this program. <laughs> <laughs> they found everything. But yeah. yeah, like if it's like, you know, I don't want to make Nick because I don't want to set that kind of precedent. But, you know, if it's somebody that like I'm familiar with who I like mm-hmm. have a lot of respect for yeah. and their hunting skills, I would generally probably start to assume that I'm, I'm going to find like a rare vulnerability if they're like that far ahead, but it's also kind of a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, can yeah. I find something that they haven't found or I might reach out to them and ask yeah. like, what are some of the insights you have about this program? See if they're willing to discuss it, maybe work yeah. together on something. Yeah. I really like that when I know, you know, just from the live hacking scene or just from the hacker scene in general, the person that, you know, really crushes the program that I'm working on. Cause it's always nice to get their insight. And I would, I would say like, you know, for example, the PayPal program, um, they, they have some really, uh, very active uh, top hackers, right? These guys are, I'm just checking right now and make sure that I can say, I'm not going to say the, yeah. So the guy in, in first place, um, you know, Alex Beerson, he's phenomenal, worked with him a bunch. Um, yeah, okay, so Joe, Joe Hash is how I'll refer to him. Uh, the guy in second place with 2,300 rep, you know, both of those guys are legendary at PayPal. And if you have a question about PayPal, they know it, you know? Um, but also, there's a lot of bugs there. I mean, clearly they've been finding bugs consistently for years and, and, um, there's enough space for them. There's enough space for, for Ron. There's enough space for all of the other people on that list as well, which means there are bugs to be found there still. Um, so when I see that, I'm a little bit like, sometimes I'm a little like if someone, if somebody has a very similar testing style to me, for example, space raccoon and I would collide on bugs all the time for a while. If space raccoon was like the number one, I'd be like, eh, but besides that, it's normally like, like you said, a challenge. Yeah. I also like to look at hacktivity when I see like a top hacker and just see, are they still really active on this program? Are they submitting a lot of reports? Um, if so, you know, are they getting lots of, sometimes they have the bounties disclosed, sometimes they don't, but are they getting high, high bounty payouts? That's yeah. another good, good sort of like testing the water type 
thing that you can do where just look in the activity mm. and see if they have bounties um, disclosed on, on the reports that they're closing and see mm -hmm. roughly, you know, what are they paying regularly? Are they paying out, you know, some guys getting 3000 3000 3000 Have he found some crazy, you know, systemic vulnerability that mm -hmm. you should be testing for? Like, what is it? Um, but that's also a really good sort of rough test that you can do to, to see what's going on at the program. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think you nailed it. That that's a positive thing. If you're seeing, you know, these, these, these bugs, you know, coming through because it means that the program will pay if you find the bugs, you know? Um, and that's really the concern here. It, 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 when you come, I think it's a common mistake that beginners make to come to these programs and be like, ah, you know, I'm going to use Eric as an example, cause he wouldn't mind, you know, today's new has like, you know, 15,000 rep here, you know, this is crazy. I'm never going to find anything. Guys, Eric does predominantly external testing. If you log in, if you pass the login screen, you've probably seen more of that app than Eric has. And so like, and that's his thing and he crushes it and he finds amazing bugs on so many different targets, but he doesn't look internally. So, you know, if you see today is new that I, I remember actually pretty clearly a time on a tweet where some, you know, some new person newer to bug bounty says, tweeted out something like when you get a new private program invite and then you see this and it's like a picture of Eric at number one with like, you know, however many rep, I was like, no, bro, you're just don't pass on that invite. Yeah. Like just, that just means I have lots of dangling domains. Don't just, worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Just log into the app, you know, like. So I think that's I think that's a common misconception that hopefully we've cleared up here. Um, yeah, and I I like one of the things about the hacktivity that I really like on Bug Crowd specifically is mm. that in their disclosed things separate from the the bounty, they also talk a little bit about what part of the scope the reports on, so you mm. can get a rough idea for where are people looking, where are the bugs surfacing themselves? Is mm -hmm. it in the API? Is it in the front end? Is it on the mobile app? Is like wherever. Was that um, Bugcrowd or was that Synac? I think it's. I think they actually both do it. Oh, do they I know both? Sy do it? Okay. Synac does it as well. Synac even. I think they disclose part of the report title or something like oh, that. Oh, really? But, okay. Yeah, but but Bugcrowd will basically just say like in this scope they got this bounty. Nice. Or actually, I think they just say like what what severity it was. I don't even mm. know if they say the bounty, but regardless, it's just a little more information that will help you gleam sort of where you might want to focus or not focus mm. depending mm. on what you're seeing. Yeah, for sure. And and I actually, or is, yeah, here it is. I had something in the doc as well. So the known issues tab is really cool on bug crowd as well. I would really wish HackerOne would implement something like this where there's a little bit transparency on how many unique issues there are outstanding that have not been resolved yet in the, in the program. Because one of the things that I really want to know when I come into a program is like, hey, are you fixing bugs? You know, what are the chances of me coming in here and finding a dupe like I did this this past week uh, and lost out on a big, big payout uh, crit because they're not fixing the bugs? Um, that's really painful for me. And even as an experienced bug hunter, you know, I've gotten probably at this point hundreds and hundreds of dupes. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess maybe I've the pain of it has been a little bit, uh, you know, removed from me for a little while because I haven't had one that really punched me in the gut lately. But this one really took the wind out of me and stopped my testing for a couple of days because I was just really like, man, you know, why, why, why is this happening? Um, and so, you know, it definitely happens and you just kind of, that's part of the game. You got to get up, you got to keep working on it. But I think something like this with the known issues um, indicator for HackerOne would really add a lot of transparency. Um, to that issue and also force programs to stay on top of resolving um, or else maybe their SLA light would go 
red or something like that. Yeah, I think overall one of the one of the more positive trends I've seen from programs is that they have slowly added certain things that are common across either a program policy or a submission process into the like application itself. Mm. And what I mean by that is, for example, uh, integrity. When you submit a bug, they have additional fields for like, what was your IP address during testing? And like, you can, you know, add customizations and stuff like that into the, the actual like form that the hacker is typing into when they submit a bug. Mm. And those types of things probably on hacker one would just be in your report template or something mm-hmm. when they go to create a new report and just that additional little step where it's integrated into the, the application where it's a, an extra field or it's an extra tab or something that you can click like known issues right instead of putting that in your policy it's a tab on the, on the program page that says these are the known issues so as a hacker i don't have to read through each program's policy and decide have they put known issues in their policy page or have they skipped over that entirely are there things i need to know about instead i can just click the known issues tab and see what they've listed there absolutely Um, agree having some standardization for that would be huge Um, and it would also allow you in a lot of cases to programmatically filter you know where if you're doing the hacking you're you're pretty you're pretty familiar with apis and how they work and such and so you know there's when you're building out your own automation or you're you know really searching for a program to to go after um, having something like that could help you filter down and in your own automation as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so anything that programs can, or platforms can do to sort of standardize that type of stuff, make it easier to find the information. I know HackerOne added a scope tab recently, which is a nice little shift so you don't have to scroll to the bottom and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's cool. The scope tab, ugh, how do I feel about the scope tab, man? I, I don't know. I feel like the scope tab is a little... Um, a little iffy it's a little weird because like it's helpful and it's nice but then there's also scope in the policy still and so it's kind of feels like all right i still got to read the whole policy and i can't just jump right to the scope so i think i think hacker one needs to make the full switch over if they're going to do it um because that you know now i just have two things to read and one of them is in in my immediate field of view you know yeah. when i get to the page 100 percent. yeah um let me see here so the other thing, one of the other things that I kind of wanted to talk about was uh, Hunter nice to haves on a program. This is this if a program has this, there's a really good chance that they're a good program to work with. So, what do I mean by that? So, um, here are some examples. I've seen programs drop treasure maps before, which will say like, "Hey, these," and even if it's not a treasure map, if they just say, "Hey, these are our core assets. These are the assets that we really care about." Um, that's really nice to have because it allows you to know, okay, you know, if I pop a crit on, you know, www.instacart.com, I mean, obviously the www is important, but like if I pop a crit on, you know, okay, hold on, let's, let, let's look because Instacart actually has this, this type of section in there, which I really appreciate. Um, just going to control F for, yeah, for core assets. Yeah, here it is right here. So admin.instacart.com would be a big, a big target. Um, they include their shoppers mobile app very explicitly. Um, and so, you know, when they have stuff like that, it's really helpful for you to be able to uh, focus on the correct targets. And you don't have to work as much. I, I talked to you earlier about the threat model, right? Like, you don't have to work as much to figure out the threat model. You know, okay, if it's in this domain, it's probably like, you know, the golden goose of sorts, you know? Like, this is the thing they want us to go after and get. Yeah, that was kind of exactly what I was going to say. I think there's definitely two perspectives. There's the company side, which is like, should we really be 
emphasizing the things that are really critical for our company publicly. And then there's the attacker side, which is this makes it so, or the researcher side, which makes it <laughs> so much. I keep saying attacker, but yeah, like, I mean, it, the, the terms it's are both. ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's also like, how do I make my report more impactful easier? So they're basically drawing the lines and saying, here's what you need to do to make it the most impactful report. It's, you know, customer data or it's this specific website or whatever. It's being able to do this certain thing. Right. And those are great guidelines and guiding factors for steering your testing in a way that makes it impactful and meaningful the whole time. So if you're testing all of your bugs in a way that's going to give it the most impact, you're going to save yourself the time of having to escalate those bugs later. Um, and you're going to get obviously higher bounties the more that you do that. Yeah, for sure. The the other thing that I kind of wanted to point out was um, there's some programs that will give you free features for their, their for their premium, and I think that's great because you know one of the things that we talk about here in the podcast a lot is like pay the pay the freaking subscription fee, right? If you if you're gonna be hacking an app and there's like some section you know where it's like oh pay fifty bucks and get access to like super premium stuff pay that shit like like every single time i've done that it has resulted in a bad vault yep um with without exception really um i have made you know 150 times you know 150x return on investment from that 50 bucks you know that you put in there because a lot of times there that extra little piece of friction is what the step that other researchers aren't willing to take and um is really separating you from the the critical vulnerabilities there but Another step that the researchers often don't take, which is also, you know, a differentiating factor is doing what is required to get access to these test features through the companies a lot of times, which is send the company an email and say, hey, could I please have a premium account? And if you do that and they say yes and they give you the premium account, well, you just saved yourself 150 bucks or whatever it costs and you also got access to the premium feature. So I wanted to shout out another one of my, my favorite programs, SEMrush. This is a... Um, this is a program that does um, search engine optimization. Uh, it's a search engine optimization application. Their bounties are pretty good. I normally like to see highs or uh, crits, uh, crits in the five-figure range um, and highs a little bit higher than they do. But their mediums are are spot on, and, I, and they're they're pretty um, willing to give out mediums. Um, so it, they will they will if you you know reach out to them, give you a premium account to test the app with. Um, so definitely keep that in mind uh, it, when you're when you're looking at that program. I'm not even sure they say it in their policy anymore. Yeah, yeah, well, that's pretty. That's actually a really cool approach. I don't think I've ever, I've ever done that where I've like approached them directly because most of the time I assume that they'll never give me it. But yeah. that's a uh, that's something I'm gonna have to try because uh, I kind of like that approach. Um, I think kind of tangentially attached to that is if you see programs that auto seed test accounts, mm. um, yeah. like Shopify for example, is great great example where if you sign up with an at wearehacker1.com email they precede your account with like test data they i think they market in the back end somehow to make it have like it's phenomenal yeah i mean however they do it it, it shows that they care right it shows yeah. that they have gone the extra mile they've worked with their engineering team they've made explicit efforts to integrate bug bounty into the engineering workflow to make it so that you can do testing easier without as many hurdles and find better bugs and yeah. that shows a lot right it shows that even like even though they might have to pay more money that's fine they'd rather have the security and pay more money than not have the security or make it harder so that's just like a really awesome thing to see yeah absolutely and i did find the the um 
the section in the SEMrush uh, uh, policy. It's down at the bottom, promo code. They'll give you a promo code with a valid submission, which I think is a good, I think that's a really good sort of indicator as well. You know, I feel like they, they, you know, if you're just giving out free accounts to everybody, then it might invalidate your business model a little bit. That almost becomes a vuln itself there. But if you do it with a valid report submission, it proves that the researcher is actually putting time into the program and has earned, you know, an, uh, an account. And uh, so, yeah, very innovative there. Really liked to see that with SEMrush. Cool. Um, what are some of the things, going off, the, off our list again, what are some of the things that, um, like, you look for if you're hacking uh if you're going back to a target are you, are you looking for like new scope um if they're in the news like what, what are the types of stuff you look for yeah i think you know i often have with the live hacking event circuit i have to leave instacart and go and and spend time on different programs and then come back to it and sometimes other programs kind of steal my attention away for a little bit but oftentimes i revert back to instacart um and in the meantime i you know i'll be looking one of the things that's really cool is gao has a feature where you can kind of look at recent URLs that were indexed. So I'll use that sometimes to kind of, you know, sniff out new features. I'll look like you, like you very shortly mentioned in the news for new features, like, ah, uh, you know, Instacart just launched XYZ and then kind of go after that. Um, but I'll also go back to the places where I was familiar with, where I, you know, dug in deep the last time I hacked there. And, you know, I feel like your mind will kind of look at that and be like, hey, that's a little bit different than it was before. And you know, then you st start to see like, okay, this is sort of a new feature added on here. And I've had that happen a couple of times where, you know, just your your eye from having tested that extensively um, is is trained to know where that new stuff is, is and, and kind of get attracted to that new functionality. So that's yeah. kind of that's kind of where I look. It's really awesome to hear like that that perspective that there are like those kind of stable programs that you can just keep going back to and and enjoy yeah. hacking and find new bugs because I think it's it's a common misconception that if you do too like too much hacking mm -hmm. so to speak on one program that it's going to dry up and it it can happen but it depends on the program it's about yeah. finding a good program right it's just kind of what we're talking about and finding one that you can hack long term on and keep finding good bugs, keep providing value to the company, keep having an enjoyable time, making money, provide a living, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I almost want to disagree with you there that, that it's about the program. I think in some cases it is about the program. Like if their development cycle is like they push new features like once every quarter or like, you know, once every half year or something like that, then it can be absolutely about the program. But a lot of the time, man, I think it's about people getting complacent. And saying like, you know, you go in there and you like pwn some stuff and you find a crit and a couple highs and mediums and blah, blah, blah. And then you like sit there and you're like, whew, all right, <laughs> that program's done, you know, but that's a mistake. <laughs> you know, you, you're just getting, you're just starting to understand the mistakes that the vulnerabilities, you know, that are there, the mistakes that this company is making. And if you dive in again and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and start trying these same techniques, you know, maybe an IDOR worked in a specific type of endpoint. Well, great, you know, let's let's try to find other endpoints that sort of resemble this. Um, you know, do they have path traversal issues? Do they have caching issues? These are all, all things that can be, you know, systemic across the, the programs and can be a continuous source of bugs, especially IDORs and access control issues. Um, you know, those are those are big. If a company doesn't have that figured out, you know, with middleware or with something like that, then there's definitely a big potential for reoccurring bugs there. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great observation. It's nice to hear that. <laughs> like you know sometimes it is the program but it's also you you know yeah. like just yeah. you don't don't let yourself slack right yeah 
All right, we are at an hour two. Let's see. Um, let's see if there's anything else that wanted to hit. Oh, the other cool thing that I wanted to just go ahead and give a shout out for two two things here. SSRF Sheriff and somebody I know has a pretty cool GitHub repo about that, right? I don't, uh, yeah, I, don't, I couldn't imagine who that is. Oh, hey, it's uh-huh. this guy named Technogi. This yeah, crazy. <laughs> genius. Love that guy. Yeah. So um, a little self-promo here. While I was at <laughs> Uber um, for one of our live hacking events, we wrote this thing called an SSRF Sheriff. It was an idea originally um, proposed by Franz. And essentially what it was is an internal service that's designed to make testing SSRF easier. So it's something that you would spin up within your infrastructure from a company side, and you would provide the researchers with an internal IP address, host name, all of the above. Hopefully both. Hopefully both. And it responds to basically any type of request. So it'll respond to images with various different images, usually with a secret identifier that is within the image um it responds with that identifier in headers in the body it has different mime types and the whole reason for this is that basically it's designed to adapt to any ssrf situation Mm. if you have uh basically anything but a blind ssrf and you can see the response in any way whether that's an image whether that's uh the headers whether that's whatever the goal is that can i hit this service and if so i should be able to get this secret string back that will prove definitively that I have an SSRF, right? If you can provide yeah. that secret string to the, the program, you can say, here's your secret string, bam, that's it's it. The, no questions the, asked. It's you, the POC you or GTFO it. mentality once again here is like, if you can hit that and, and you get this back, then boom. You know, and that, that really, that instant feedback for us as hackers as well is really valuable because, you know, we could spend hours sitting there poking at with an, uh, you know, blind SSRF trying to prove internal impact, or you could set up the server, we could hit it in, in two minutes and have that sort of decided. So I love to see when programs set up that, that tool that, that Joel made, it's pretty easy to set up really simple. You just, you know, if you've got sort of DevOps in your organization, you can, you can spin it up real easily. Um, and definitely something that adds a lot of value. Okay, the other thing that I wanted to shoot out uh, before we before we move along is documentation. And you know I love document. You, I love, love being a good document, man. Um, and so or a bad uh, one. Yeah, I mean, you know, bad documentation too. It's better than no documentation. And most of the, most websites do have documentation. Um, What's better is when they give you sort of internal documentation, documentation for their API, then maybe stuff that contains like GraphQL schemas or, or, you know, maybe like a Postman file or like, you know, Swagger or something like that. Um, that those are all very helpful because we can see as we start, you know, ascending or um, as we start ascending, as we, <laughs> we're levitating, <laughs> um, as we start assessing the application, um, you know, you. you <laughs> You you start finding. Um, <laughs> I can sorry. feel myself rising off my chair yeah, already. I just, I'm Whoa. stuck on the Joel. Cut it out, man. Yeah, as you start assessing the application, you get various. You know, you see various common threads across across the app, and um, it's easier to see all of those. You know, when you've got the API documentation, you can see. Okay, well, maybe. Um, you know, API calls that are structured a little bit like this would be more vulnerable than others. So very, very helpful there. And it also helps us be thorough as well. You know, sometimes you just sit down and you grind and you just make, uh, you know, a replay tab or a repeater tab for every single API endpoint that you have and you, you know, fuzz the crap out of those. And that's the kind of testing you want from the program side. That's what, you know, really gets you some very thorough results. 
Um, and, and so you can really enable that with a Swagger file or a GraphQL schema. Yeah, and this was reminding me of something. This is probably more specific to live hacking events. I feel like this fell off a little bit, but when I was at Uber, one of the things that um, I pushed for was providing zone files mm. to oh, researchers. Man. Yeah. And um, uh, this is a little bit trickier to do for a public program to keep it like maintained and up to date. Mm. Um, there actually was, I, I don't remember, I think that Uber does this now. I don't know if yeah, they do they it did. publicly, but, yeah. but they basically, we, we created a tool that would automatically pull like a list of all the domains and then keep it in an, in a file up to date so that mm. there's no question about like, am I missing something because my recon's bad it, mm. or my word list is bad. We'll give you a full list of every single domain that exists. Go ahead and find bugs on it. And that removes just, you know, another barrier. It makes yeah, it much easier. Security. Yeah. And it, it shows that, you know, security's valued. It doesn't matter if it's like, a complicated domain we care about the vulnerability within that domain let's let's see what you got um and yeah. sort of just you know again putting money where your mouth is absolutely yeah i totally dig that too that really <clears throat> puts everyone on an equal playing field as far as recon goes because you know a lot of people have access to specific I, I won't call it out specifically but there's you know certain api services that are out there that are very 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 expensive um that will give you access to a lot more domains than other people have access to. Um, and, and so, you know, doing something like releasing the zone files puts everyone in equal playing ground. And then it's the, it's the person that can hack the app the best that, that finds the bug. Right. And that's kind of like what Jason was talking about last week. One of my favorite quotes from last week was, you know, the whole point of recon is to find more apps to hack, you know? Yep. And, and um, uh, I think giving, giving the zone files really proves that. Yeah, don't make it a recon game. Make it a, a security game. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. I think we'll cut the rest of that doc there. And uh, let me talk about this report really quick, and then we'll, we'll peace out. So cool. um, I just wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about this report on the pod because I, I thought this was really creative, and this actually wasn't something that I'd seen before, or at least I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, this is report 1861974. We'll link it in the in the description of the podcast. But it's a... Um, report uh, to Pixiv, which is a, a, a Japanese program. I've actually looked at them a lot because their their site is in Japanese. Um, and uh, this is a, the, in this report essentially. And I missed this bug, just to be clear, which makes me a little salty. <laughs> mm. um, but there's an OAuth flow, and what happens is when the user completes the OAuth flow, um, there's actually or in the return URL, there's a path traversal that you can do that allows you to hit any endpoint on the, uh, you know, target domain, right? It's only validating, you know, hey, does it start with blah, blah, right? So in, this, in, the, in the example here, they have slash auth, slash pixiv, slash callback, and then that's, you know, where the cutoff ends there. And then he is able to do dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, and then provide a different item number. Now, this used to be a lot more impactful um, when uh, the browsers were sharing the the uh, refer cross origin um and you could just you know leak the uh, oauth token via uh, open redirect or something like that then the browsers stopped adding the path and the query parameter to the referrer because uh, of security issues and that fixed a lot of these issues but the uh the report writer here has a really innovative um solution he uh there's some uh application there's some feature in the application where you can set up a google analytics tracking id on that page and this cool this is cool right um 
And when you put up your Google Analytics tracking ID on there, so you can get analytics on how many people are visiting your items or whatever, um, what that does is it takes the URL and it leaks it to the attacker. So I think this is going to be, and you know, Franz already talks about this in his post message, um, uh, you know, expose, like very long thing that he released on on how to leak, you know, URL, OAuth URLs via post message. Um, but I think there's also going to be an, another area where this becomes, you know, where these sort of vulns, uh, essentially URI leak or something like that. Um, becomes a thing because they're often able to chain with OAuth and uh, you often find yourself able to insert or get um, vulnerable information into the URL and then you know have that leaked if you can find a way to get it out. Um, so it's just another attack vector for you guys to be thinking about as you're, as you're bug hunting and, and um, you know anytime you can leak the, UR, the URL, definitely think about OAuth tokens or think about sensitive information getting placed there. Yeah, that's a super creative um, att like attack scenario. I don't think I probably would have thought that was yeah. even possible. Um, but it's like one of those unique application features that, you know, the more familiar you are with the application, the fact that you, he knew or they knew that you could put a Google Analytics tracking ID with your custom Google mm -hmm. Analytics and yeah. track those URL. That's a, an awesome, like creative way and uh, to, to exploit this. And it was marked as a high because that, you know, yeah. It's a great finding. And I, I've um, worked with the Pixiv program a little bit. Like, no, I mean, I'm not going to diss them, but I've had some problems with, with them. So the fact that they acknowledge this as a high is really, you know, one, a step in the right direction. Two, shows that how well-written the report is and the, the mentality of the attacker, um, which, is, which is really cool. So um, kudos to this guy. It definitely, he, this is another rant, so I'm going to try to keep it concise because we're getting, you know, a little far here. But, you know, you know how we do here. We just go yeah, and we yeah, go and we go. We go. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is how, like, in this scenario, the attacker realizes, the hacker realizes that, uh, you know, when stuff, when sensitive information makes its way into the URL, there's risk there. When, when you know, and when user input gets reflected into the, the DOM or to the body, there's risk there. And I think um, a lot of the ways that people address learning how to hack is like, oh, okay, XSS, you know, okay, IDOR. And they, they think about these vulnerability categories when in, in a lot of times the way that you're coming up with these big brain, like crazy creative bugs is you're not thinking about it so much as from this perspective of like, ah, this is a vuln type that I'm familiar with. You're coming at it from this perspective like, okay, when a application takes attacker information and puts it in a request that they make on the server side, sketchy stuff happens. When that data gets reflected into the DOM, sketchy stuff happens. When sensitive information gets put into the URL, sketchy stuff happens. And that's, you know, so as you're, as you're starting to learn how to hack, those indicators should start triggering. Like, okay, this is weird. Okay, this is sketchy. Oh, there's post messages flying here. That's inter-page communication. You know, there's an attack vector there. And I think focusing on those instead of focusing on vulnerability types can more can help you become more of a of a I, I, I don't want to use the word generic but like a, a sort of a jack of all traits hacker you know someone who can really under come that isn't like a textbook hacker that just reads the textbook and finds the eye doors by replacing the number right um, so if you're really shooting for the stars um, understanding those threat models in the browser in the app you know in all pieces of the application is really important I think. Yeah, it's like that more adaptive kind of style of hacking. It's Absolutely. not just that it, you're you're not a just a scanner, right? You're not mm -hmm. just Nessus or whatever. You're mm -hmm. 
you're a hacker and you're you're supposed to be coming up with more creative because those automated systems don't worry they're out there there's a million of them and they're doing it all at the same time like that that attack surface is almost certainly covered yeah what you should be focusing on is the more creative things that those scanners are not going to find that are going to provide real deep inherent value to the security team and to the to the company who's dealing with this vulnerability right it it shows you know i think this report is a great example of it where it's just showing that you've gone one step further, right? Like anybody could have just tested OAuth flow. Oh, okay, it doesn't have a redirect, and if it can, it's just on a path. Okay, whatever. Next, done, skip, right? But this researcher specifically was like, "Hang on a second, that is weird. That's there is risk, right? How mm. can I exploit that risk?" Yeah, phenomenal. Really, really well done there. Um, good, good tips to end the podcast with. Uh, you got anything else you want to say before we bounce, Joel? No, I think that's it. All right, sweet. That's the pod. Yo, for everyone out there listening on Apple Podcasts, you guys are getting crushed by the viewers on Spotify. The viewers on Spotify have dropped about 100 five-star reviews, and there's two on Apple Podcasts. So uh, I want you guys to turn that around. Show us some love on Apple Podcasts this week.